Slake. And this morning we are looking at this passage that I think pretty much everyone agrees is one of the most difficult passages to understand in the whole of the New Testament. I mean, even Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. In other words, Luther is saying, man, this is great, but I haven't got a clue what he is talking about. Okay, if that's what Luther thinks, what chance do we stand? Well, what I want to show you is, I think we have, a, we have a better chance, and that is because we have access to some resources uh, that Luther didn't in his time. Resources that can help us understand why the people who first heard this letter read to them in church, instead of leaving that Sunday morning and going, wow, that is so deep, Peter, but I frankly don't have a clue what you are talking about. Okay, they would have left that Sunday morning, having heard it, feeling encouraged and emboldened and equipped to stay in the fight. Because they were in a fight. At least they were in a struggle because they are facing growing hostility, growing opposition for their Christian faith. And after a while, that can begin to get to you, can't it? I mean, whether it's hostility or just the hardship of life, if you are on the receiving end of criticism, and it just keeps on coming, it can just begin to sap your joy. You know, whether that's from family or from friends or colleagues, it can begin to get to you. And you can begin to wonder, maybe they're right. You know, maybe they're right, you know, about this attacking the Christian faith. Maybe they are right, maybe I am wrong. And as it begins to wear you down, you can begin to think, man, is it worth it? But of course, it's not just opposition, as I say, that can do that. Life can. I mean, maybe, maybe you are trying to live a faithful Christian life. Or maybe you are not yet a Christian, but you're trying to live a good life. You're trying to live a upright, moral kind of life, be a person of integrity. But life is not working okay those plans you have aren't coming together things just aren't don't seem to be as they should be and you are beginning to think why do i bother why do i bother trying to be better than i am at the moment and in some ways that was the case for these guys they are you know as tom said last week they they are suffering for doing good and while doing good and it's why Peter finishes the previous section that we looked at last week by saying, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. But why? Why is it? Why is it better? Why should you endure? Why should you keep going? Why should you embrace the cost of doing what is right, being faithful to Christ, doing what is right generally, <coughs> and not compromise or not quit. I mean, what if you are here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, but you're thinking about it, you're exploring the Christian faith, but one of the things that is holding you back is that you know that if you become a Christian, there's going to be a cost involved. Okay, think life might actually get harder. Life might actually get more complicated. You, you might face some of those incoming missiles from family or friends. 
bit of a backlash. Or let's say that you are a Christian, which is probably most of us here, but let's say for you, you're single and you wish that you weren't. Why should you be willing to stay single, maybe for the rest of your life, rather than date or marry that non-Christian who is interested in you? Or let's say that you, or all of us, let's say you are caught up in something that you know is wrong. Could be a relationship, could be something at work, and your conscience is beginning to prick you about this issue. Why should you stop? Why should you pull out of that situation, even though you know that doing so, if you do pull out, is going to cause you a whole load more problems? Maybe even cost you a friendship or a promotion or even your job. Or, give you another example, think about Christian teaching that is currently unpopular, like the exclusivity of Christ, or the reality of hell, or sexual ethics. And that topic comes up in conversation, maybe at work, maybe in your classroom, maybe with uh, your circle of friends, and you are dreading someone asking you what you think about this issue. Why should you risk the embarrassment or the shame of standing up for Christ and for truth when, frankly, it would be easier just to stay quiet or not say anything? And the reason I use those as examples is because they were almost certainly the kind of things, kind of situations that these guys were facing. And the umbrella question you, you could ask is, why be willing to suffer for doing good? Well, in today's passage, Peter gives them and us three reasons. Firstly, because Christ died for you. Look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered. I want you to think for a moment about the people who have inspired you. Maybe they continue to inspire you and why they inspire you. I mean, isn't it because you see something in them that you want to be true for yourself? You know, for my own life, I can think of uh, three guys at least who have inspired me, who I look at and think, I want to be like them. Campbell McAlpine, who taught me the Bible. Jeremy Blake, who taught me how to be a dad and a husband. Chris Kors, who taught me the value of a life of service. And I look at those guys and I think, I want to be like them. I want to follow their example. At the outbreak of the Second World War, the then Queen, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, she was asked by the government to consider relocating her kids, the future Queen and Princess Margaret, out of London and to safety in Canada. To which she replied, I can't do her accent. To which she replied, the children will not leave without me. I will not leave without the king. And the king will never leave. Why? Because they understood the power of example. The power that the example of others, the courage of others, how that can inspire courage in us. And Peter is saying... Look at the courage of Christ. Look how he embraced the cost and let the way that he suffered and endured suffering inspire you. Except it's more than that, isn't it? 
Because why did he suffer? Verse 18 again. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Okay, so Jesus, Jesus didn't just suffer to be for us a great moral example of how to bear up under suffering. It's that he suffered by stepping and because he stepped into our place as our substitute, as our substitutionary sacrifice. And you might hear that and think, well, thanks, Peter. But is this really the time to, for, to bring up the theology of substitutionary atonement? I mean, these guys are suffering. Give them something to hang on to. Don't go on about substitutionary atonement. Sure, but that's Peter's point, isn't it? Because when you see and understand that Christ loves you so much that he was willing to suffer for you, it's going to do something on the inside. It's going to stir up a love for him and a loyalty for him and courage to suffer for him. But I think he also brings up the issue of substitutionary atonement because of why we're suffering or why we think we're suffering and why we might try and avoid suffering. You see, what does it do to how you view hardship and difficulty and suffering if you think that God's love for you is dependent on you being a good person or you standing up for truth? Let me turn those around the other way. Okay, if you think that God's love for you is dependent on you being a good person or you standing up for truth, how are you going to view suffering and difficulty and hardship in life if you have been doing all of those things but all of this stuff is still coming in at you? Because if you think like that, when something bad happens to you, you can begin to start thinking things like, God, why are you treating me like this? I've, I've tried to live a good life. I'm, I'm trying to do what is right here. Or I have been valiant for truth. Why are you punishing me like this? And Peter's saying he's not. He's not punishing you. Verse 18 again. Christ also suffered once for sins. Jesus has already paid all of your debts once and for all, fully and finally. So when you are suffering as a Christian, you can know this is not God punishing me. Because of Christ, God, my Father, already loves me. And so anything he lets happen to me must be because of his loving fatherly purpose. So I don't have to endure this to earn his favour. I can endure it and I can embrace this because I already have his favour. But also, if you think of yourself or how, if, if how you think of yourself is dependent on how others think of you, what is that going to do to your willingness to pay the cost of becoming or being a Christian? Let me turn those around again. Okay, if you are or uh, could face a cost of 
being or becoming a Christian, how are you going to face that cost if how you view yourself is dependent on how other people view you? Because to feel good about yourself, you need to know that others feel good about you and think well of you. So you won't risk their good opinion of you. Or if your worth is tied to your career, you will struggle to risk that for doing what's right. Or if it's tied to having the latest great experience that everyone else is having, just very practically, you're going to struggle to pay the cost of living generously and giving your money away because you'll need to hold on to the money to fund those experiences that can help you keep up with everybody else. In other words, look for approval or worth in the wrong places and you are going to struggle to do the good that you should because doing good always comes at a cost. And Peter is saying, but because of Christ, you already have God's approval once and for all. And in Christ, you are counted as righteous. And when you know that, when you know what he thinks of you, it frees you to risk what other people think of you. You see, Peter says that the reason that Christ was willing to suffer for us was, verse 18, that he might bring us to God. Now, last Saturday night, um, Sue and I were clubbing in London. <laughs> I know you're wondering where we were. We were clubbing in London and uh, we were wandering the streets of London at night in the rain. And we were going down this side street and then that side street and then another one. And we had absolutely no idea where we were. Okay, fortunately, we were with someone who did know where we were. And Peter is saying, outside of Christ, we are like people who are lost. We are wandering around the city of life with no map. We're misreading, or mis misreading, misinterpreting all of the street signs and we are miles from home. And then Christ comes to bring us home, to bring us back to the Father and to a life lived on a different plane. Because Christ didn't just die for you, Peter says. You can embrace suffering because secondly, Christ rose victorious. Why can you embrace suffering? Because he died for you. And because he rose victorious. Verse 18 again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, one of the perplexities of this passage, does Peter mean by that that Jesus died physically, but that he was raised spiritually? That if only Peter and the others had looked harder, been a bit more diligent in their searching that first Easter Sunday of the morning, they would have found Jesus' still dead body? Is that what he means? No. What he literally says is that Jesus was put to death in flesh and made alive in spirit. 
And in the New Testament, that word for flesh, sarx, is used for the realm of the power of sin, the controlling power of sin and our inability as individuals, as humans, to do anything about sin. And Peter is comparing that realm to the realm into which Christ was resurrected, that he has opened up to us. And it is the realm of the spirit. And at the cross, he was put to death in the flesh by the powers of the flesh. But he was raised physically by the spirit to the realm of the spirit. And in bringing us to God, he opens the door to that resurrection life, beginning in this life. He opens the door and he beckons us in. Come in. You're in the Narnia Chronicles. Come in and let's go higher. Which means that even if you have to pay the ultimate price, the ultimate price for being faithful to Christ, which is what Peter had to do, which is what some of his friends had to do, which is what some of our brothers and sisters around the world still have to do, even if the ultimate price is required of you, that death is not the end. Christ has led us into resurrection life, Peter is saying. So don't compromise your faith. Don't quit. Don't deny him to avoid death or any lesser cost. Okay, but it's the fact that Peter is talking here about Christ's resurrection that tells you what is going on in the next perplexing part. Who are these spirits in prison? I mean, who are they? Verses 19 to 20. In which, in this realm of the spirit into which Christ has been resurrected, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Okay, so because this is happening after his resurrection, this is not Jesus descending into hell between his death and his resurrection, and neither is it Jesus preaching through Noah to people trapped in their sins during the time of Noah, which is how some theologians have read this. Because with one exception, whenever that word spirits, plural spirits is used, it is used to refer to demonic powers, not to humans. As Karen Job says in her commentary on this passage, inside and outside the New Testament, spirits is used overwhelmingly to refer to malevolent supernatural spirits. You see, what Martin Luther did not have access to was the book that was doing the rounds in Peter's day. And he also didn't have access to what we know now about the kind of stories that were influencing the culture that Peter's friends were living in. And that book was the first book of Enoch. Okay, it's a Jewish book describing the exploits of Enoch, who was Noah's great-grandfather. And though it was popular in uh, first century times, in, in Peter's day, it was lost. It sort of went out of publication around 200 AD until it was rediscovered in the late 1700s in Ethiopia, 200 years after Luther. And in Genesis 5.24, this is the Bible, just prior to the flood narrative, 
Okay, we are told, just prior to getting to Noah, we're told Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. But where did God take him? Where did Enoch go? Well, the first book of Enoch creates these stories about where Enoch went. It's um, apocryphal, it's not, it's not true. Enoch went traveling. Okay, and he came across the fallen angels who were seen as responsible for the growing sin in Noah's day. And as a result of them breaking God's given boundaries, including having sex with women, God had imprisoned them in eternal chains. But they pleaded with Enoch to plead with God on their behalf to set them free. So Enoch goes off to God and he comes back with the answer and the answer is no. You are doomed for eternal punishment. Great. Nice story. What has the travels of an ancient Hebrew, Enoch, traveling in the underworld, got to do with these predominantly Gentile Christians suffering for their loyalty to Christ? I mean, would they even have known the stories about Enoch? Maybe or maybe not. But their Jewish Christian friends in the churches almost certainly would have. And besides, we know something else that Luke Luther did not have access to. And that is that Noah just happened to be something of a cult hero in that part of Asia Minor. Because they also had their flood narratives, distinct from the Bible, in which Noah also features. And the ark comes to ground in their backyard. In fact, Noah was famous enough to have his image and the image of his wife in and outside of the ark printed on their coins. Okay, so I want you to see what Peter is doing. He's tapping into a story that these guys would have known very well. And he's doing that for at least two reasons. Firstly, in their day, they would have had a sense that things were just getting worse. That things are going from bad to worse. That sin and rebellion against God are reaching a whole new level. Something maybe you feel today is you look at on our own culture. And for them, that was the growing pressure they were experiencing to engage in the imperial cult and the worship of the emperor. As I say, it's something that we might experience today or feel that's what's happening today. As things are unraveling and appear to be going from bad to worse. Well, Peter is saying, yes, but that was what it was like in Noah's day. And the problem is, is when you are caught up in times like that, you can begin to miss the big picture. And you begin just to see things on the human level, on, of who's on your side and who isn't, who's, of who's with you and who's against you. But what the Bible does is it pulls back the curtain on the stage and shows you the powers of darkness that are at work, that are responsible behind all of this, behind the scenes. As Paul writes... For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
And so Peter is saying, listen, it's not Enoch who proclaimed judgment against those dark powers who are responsible for the increasing sin in Noah's day or in our own day. The person who has proclaimed judgment on those dark powers is Christ. And he was put to death in the flesh, but he has been raised in the spirit. And in that realm of the spirit, he has proclaimed his victory and their defeat. So Peter is saying, when you look out on the world and you are tempted to think that darkness is winning, look to Christ's resurrection and don't fear. Don't quit the fight. Because Christ has triumphed. That's the first reason he tells this story. The second reason he points them to this story, verse 20. Because they formerly, these spirits, did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. How many Christians are there in your class at school? How many Christians are there in your office at work? How many Christians are there on your management board or your executive team? I hope if you work for Meadow, a few. Okay, <laughs> at least some. Uh, for the rest of us, maybe not so, not so many. How many Christians are there in your department? Maybe in your group of friends on campus? You see, it wasn't just that Peter's friends were living at a time when what was wrong was increasingly being viewed as right. It was that, like Noah, they would have felt hopelessly outnumbered. How many Christians were there in their cities and their towns? Just a few dozen who meet together in somebody's front room. And maybe you know what that feels like. Maybe youth, you know what that feels like in school. Maybe you know what that feels like in the office. But like Noah and his family, they too, maybe you, are being mocked as an antisocial on the wrong side of history minority. And Peter is saying, yep, but look at Noah. And be encouraged because God's people have always been in the minority. I mean, since when has truth been decided by a popular vote? Since when has what is right or wrong been decided by majority opinion? But when you're experiencing the pressure of being a minority, that can begin to get to you, can't it? And you can begin to wonder, why doesn't God just end it all? You know, if you're staying faithful, why doesn't God just end it all? Why doesn't he just bring judgment now? And maybe his failure to do so makes you doubt. Is there really a God? If there is a God, does he care? As a non-Christian friend said to me a couple of weeks ago, come on, Martin, it's been 2,000 years since Christ, and he's not come back. What would Peter have replied to that? Yeah, 2,000 years of Christ's kindness and patience giving you a chance to repent and come to him and experience his love for yourself. And while you wait faithfully, if you're a Christian, Peter is saying, remember that if God knew how to save Noah, he knows how to save you. 
You're not missing in action. You're not lost to his sight. Verses 20 to 21. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. In other words, all along, Noah's rescue was prefiguring our rescue. Great, but maybe perplexing thing number three, does he really mean by that that we are saved by getting baptised? No. Okay, look how he qualifies what he says. Verse 21. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Noah saved through water. Us saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's not the physical act of baptism or the physical washing that saves you it is what it symbolizes that when we are baptized we are acting out our appeal to God to save us in Christ through his death and his resurrection in other words we're not saved because we go under the water we're saved because Christ did and at the cross the floodwaters, the torrent of God's wrath for our sin engulfed him. But just as the water that spelt death for the unrighteous in Noah's day spelt rescue for Noah, so the death of Christ spells rescue and life for us. And as we go under the water in baptism, we are symbolizing our union with him in his death. And when we are brought up and out, we are symbolizing that we have been raised with him, raised to the realm of his resurrection life. Okay, so maybe this week you're going to face some barbed comments or some rolled eyes because you're a Christian or because you choose to say something at work. Or maybe you will read something in the media that tells you that, or implies that you are part of a backwards minority on the wrong side of history. Why should you stay faithful to Christ and not let that sap your joy? Because Christ died for you. More than that, because he was raised from the dead and he has defeated the powers and your baptism tells you, you are united with him. But there's a third reason why you shouldn't quit, why you shouldn't give up, you shouldn't go quiet. Because Christ ascended and he reigns. Now, uh, next Saturday, uh, Charles will be crowned king king and supreme ruler over all the rebellious Scots, all Australians, and rightful ruler over all Americans. And as he sits in King Edward's throne, a golden orb will be put into his right hand. And that orb is a symbol of the world. If you notice, if you can bring yourself to watch it, if you notice, on the top of that orb is a cross. Okay, it is a sign of Christ's dominion over the world. And as he's given it, he will be told, 
Receive this orb set under the cross and remember that the whole world is subject to the power and empire of Christ. And then a scepter will be placed into his left hand and he will be told, receive the rod of equity and mercy, punish the wicked, protect and cherish the just and lead your people in the way wherein they should go. It's all great symbolism, which is just as well as his power is entirely symbolic. Okay, but it is symbolism that then and now is designed to point the monarch and everyone watching to the true king, to the king over every king. Verse 22, Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven, and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Why should they be willing to pay the price of loyalty to Christ? Because he died, because he rose again, because he is now ascended and reigning over every power. You see, one reason why we can wobble when life is hostile and hard is that frankly it can feel like life is out of control and I just need to try and get everything back under control. And Peter is saying, don't try and do that. That's hopeless. Instead, look up and see him who is really in control. And as you do, hope will fill your heart. So this week, if you find yourself compromising or being tempted to compromise with sin, in whatever way, ask yourself, just consider, are you doing that because other people's opinion, their opinions of you matter too much to you? Or maybe you are resenting some difficulty that is coming into your life. I want you to consider, does your understanding of the cross and of the Father's unearned, undeserved love for you, does that need to go deeper? If you find yourself getting angry at someone who you think is opposing, someone or some group of people who you think is opposing or frustrating you, ask yourself, have I lost sight of the real battle? Am I beginning to think that my enemy is flesh and blood? Or am I keeping my eyes fixed that our battle is not against flesh and blood? This week, if you feel fearful or life feels out of control, I'd encourage you, set some time aside to meditate on Christ ascending and reigning over all. And as you do, you will know that you are in his safe hands. And this week, if you're, if you're a Christian, but you have not yet been baptised, the lake's beginning to warm up. <laughs> so come and see me. Okay, so to finish. Why should you embrace the cost of following Christ? Because he suffered for you. Because he rose victorious over the powers. Because he reigns and is sovereign over all. See those three things and they will give you the boldness that you need. But it will also give you a humility to love those who are hostile to you. 
because you know they're not the real enemy and the battle is already won and the darkness is already defeated and Christ is already reigning. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Father, thank you that Christ is ascended, he's risen, he's ascended, and he reigns. Father, may the way we live this week be founded on those truths. May those truths seep ever deeper into our hearts. May they humble us and lift us up and give us courage and joy as we remain faithful to him. And we thank you that all of us are held in his great hands. Lord, there's no better place to be. And in his name we pray. Amen.